Please turn with me to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Some of the most profound words in Scripture, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Thank you, uh, Dean. I want to talk about the gospel, and I've entitled the comments today, The Gospel, and then in capital is, capital I, capital S, the gospel is what? It's good news. It is good news. That's what the gospel is all about. But is the gospel good news to you? Is it good news to me? I had to think about that a little bit. Um, There are some examples in the Bible where the gospel wasn't good news. At least to the people, they didn't feel like it was good news. There's actually a book in the Bible about a prophet who didn't think the gospel was good news. His name was Jonah. And Jonah was sent to deliver a message. Now, of all the crazy things, this is one of the most amazing stories that children love to hear about, this fish that uh, gobbled up Jonah. And he was in the belly of the fish for how long? (laughs) Every kid knows a a song about that, don't they? Finally, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go, so he was trying to run away, but finally the fish burped him up (laughs) on dry land, and he went and he did. Would you go and do that after you figure you couldn't get away from God? He could even send fish, right? What can you do? Well, you might as well go ahead and deliver this, this message. It was not a message of gospel. It was a message of doom. So finally Jonah got himself together and he was going to deliver this message of doom to the Ninevites. You better get straight. You're going to, be get, you're going to, you're going to die. You know, so... He preached the message, faithfully preached the message. That would be a very hard message to preach, wouldn't it? I prefer to preach the gospel, but Jonah had to preach doom. And then he went up on the hill and he waited for it to happen. And did it happen? You know, for some reason, those Ninevites repented. And was God going to change his mind? That raises some big questions about God. Does God change his mind? Anyway, so he goes up on the hill. The city isn't destroyed. And you can read it in Jonah Jonah chapter 4 where Jonah says, I knew you were too kind. He was sitting up there pouting angry at God. (laughs) You were too patient, too forgiving to carry out your threat. You have made a fool out of me. And he was very angry at God. Now God had done good news, gospel. He had done something wonderful. And it wasn't received too kindly. You made a fool out of me. Can you remember another example of the gospel not being received very kindly in the Bible? What about when those people brought 
this woman caught in adultery. By the way, according to some inspired counsel, she was set up. Right? And they brought her before Jesus. And what happened? They wanted Jesus to condemn her. And instead of condemning her, what did he do? Sat down and wrote something in the sand that basically made them all want to leave. All of her accusers leave. So it might have been some intimidating stuff about them. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't see any. I don't see any either. And he sent her away, forgiven. That's gospel. That's good news. Now, what about some other examples of gospel in the Bible that was not received too favorably? Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the people that went out to work and the employer went in the first thing in the morning? Do you remember that story? And he tells this story and... Will you come and work? Yeah, I'll work. Here's a set wage. And then there was more on more, and then later on more, if I have the story right. And the last one, they just worked an hour. And they got the same wage as the one who had been toiling all day long. And the one that had been toiling all day long was angry. You know, people sometimes are just not happy about good news. It's all over the place. When other people have good things happen to them, they are angry that God isn't doing the same for them. And so the gospel is not good news because it's not treating them properly. And so the gospel can be bad news to some people. I want to say something. Um, this has been a troubling thing for me. Uh, what do we do about this good news called the gospel? Um, when we find things that are amiss and wrong in the lives of other people, does the gospel give us some guidelines on how to deal with that? Do they tell us what to do? We can find many examples Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we can find examples when the sins of the people were pointed out, and if they were not pointed out, the blood, the cost of pointing them out, would fall upon the people who failed to point them out. Is that correct? Did, I, that, did you get lost in that story there on that one? And so the message has come down to my forefathers and the ones that raised me, and the ones that trained me in ministry, that you have a responsibility to correct the wrongs in a church and the wrongs in people's lives. Now, as a parent, I really felt that. That if my kid had a problem, I had a responsibility to correct that, right? You find that conservative churches, Adventist church is a conservative church, generally believe that. And they believe that we've got to get our act right. And then last night, I read this amazing account in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, that we all know very, very familiarly. We're familiar with it. Here you find Jesus. He's just finished his public ministry. The first chapters of John, the first 12 chapters are about his public ministry, brings it to an end, and he goes into a private ministry. 
This is a private ministry. He's preparing his disciples in an intimate way for the time that was very soon to come when he would leave them and they would have to get along without him. That would be a big challenge for that team of people trying to get along without Jesus. And John, the first story that he tells in that private section focusing on the disciples is the story of the Passover feast that Jesus celebrated with them. Chapter 13. We've read it. We know all about that story. And you remember, we talked about it just several weeks ago, you know, there was no one to serve. And it says that Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father, and he was about ready to go to the Father, and he was loved by the Father, that was all he needed to stand up and take off his outer garment and clothe himself as a servant, and begin to wash the feet of those disciples. The first thing that he needed to do in an intimate, close relationship to prepare them for what lay ahead was to wash their feet. And what is so amazing about that story, as he worked his way around that 12, those 12 disciples, who did he come to? Just name a few. What about Peter? Do you think Jesus had any idea what was just about to happen with Peter? You know, the champion, the foremost champion. I will stand, I will be loyal no matter what. And Peter is running for cover. He's even blaspheming. Why? And yet Jesus, without saying a word to Peter, washes his feet. You know, Jesus, didn't you forget something? Aren't you supposed to tell Peter, you know, how wrong he is and correct him? It was the gospel that Jesus was illustrating, going around that circle. And then he comes to another one, very famous one, Judas, who had already started to contract with a priest to deny Jesus and to turn him over to the priest. And did Jesus say one shameful word to Judas? He knew what was in his heart, and yet he washed his feet. He loved him. And oh, you know, I think to myself, church members should be more famous, it seems like, for the gospel than for the other side. I think... Churches, oftentimes, and I'm not thinking about this church, but just my history, maybe churches are getting better and members are getting better. I hope that's the case. I hope I'm getting better, you know, over the years, that we have moved away from the Jonah position, you know, and moved more towards the position of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean there's not room for, you know, Apostle Paul, who loved the gospel. He writes about it here in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, the power of God and the salvation. He was very proud of the gospel. And yet, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't at times have to have heart-to-heart talks with his church. Pretty pointed at times, right? But when it comes down to the core of how Paul felt about every one of those members in his church, there was no doubt in, his mind, in their minds that it was the gospel 
that was motivating every single action in Paul's life and his attitude towards them. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The good news is all about God. Now, Jonah was unhappy, but Paul was happy about the gospel. Now, was the gospel some kind of a new teaching in the New Testament era? Was it brand new? <laughs> what we think about the gospel and how we feel about the gospel determines the kind of life we lead. That's just a very plain statement. Our theology determines our behavior. And if we have a theology that is focused upon correcting wrong, then our thinking about our own position with God as well as everybody that we deal with will be governed by that theology. Beliefs can control behavior. In some way they can do that. I'm going to tell you a story. I've referred to this in the past, but I, it's my story, so that's what I do. Um, my father, my adoptive father, grew up in a home governed by a mother who was short, but she was mean, she was a Christian, and I have looked up in the past uh, recorder articles that date way back to the early part of the century, and there's her name. She passed out so many subscriptions to the Adventist periodicals, signed people up for them, and there's her name, my dad's mom. But according to my dad, there was not any gospel in this woman at all. You know, she was hard. She was mean. She was angry. And my dad, growing up under her, not only grew up to hate her, but to hate God, who she represented. And a sensitive young boy became a hardened man who adopted another little boy and made me into a hard man because of his beliefs. That was a strange thing in my home because my mother, a loving, gospel-loving woman, my dad, you know, hard, still angry, I saw evangelists, big-time evangelists, come to our hometown in Fresno, and they would come in and they would actually kneel down. My dad sitting there in a, in a couch, you know, a chair, and they would kneel down and they would plead to him to give his heart to Jesus Christ. It was a stone wall. My dad, I saw this. I saw, I saw so much hate and anger. And that's a tragedy. I talked about the Rockies and the hurts and, and the abuses that have long-term effect. My dad was a prime example of that. Once when my sister, I may have told this story. I can't remember what I tell and don't tell. But you remember pogo sticks? Did I tell you the pogo stick story? My sister and I, this was back in the good old days when kids knew how to have good fun, jumping up and down on a pogo stick and whirly, what's these little things that, hula hoop? Yeah, I could actually do that back then. And uh, <laughs> quite amazing. Lloyd, were you ever, ever able to make a hula hoop work? 
Lloyd, you couldn't do it? Did you ever jump on a pogo stick? Well, my, my, my sister out there, I did it too, but she held on to this thing and she could jump all around the driveway, up and down, up and down, up and down, just like Tigger. And um, for some strange reason, once when she was up in the air, her feet came off the pedals, and when she came down, the pogo stick went right through here. Now, I want to tell you what happens when the gospel is not in the heart of an individual as it wasn't in the heart of my dad. When he came out, he saw what that pogo stick did. There was only one thing that he felt. Anger and rage. If you don't have the gospel, that's pretty much where you're at. He took that pogo stick, and while she was bleeding, (laughs) bleeding on the ground, he went over and started beating that pogo stick around the mailbox. He was trying to break it, punish it. Mom, a nurse, came out and she was trying her best to get somebody to help to stop the bleeding, call the doctor, you know, get the ambulance, all that kind of stuff. And my sister was turning wider and wider and wider and the pogo stick was turning, had a, you know, an interesting curve around it as he continued to try to beat it around the mailbox post. Oh, I grew up with this man. And I fell in love with the God of my mother. And I had all of the anger of my dad inside me. And it came out on my children. And uh, my son, I find out, from a conversation he had with his siblings, I knew it was the case, but he finally admitted it to them, not to me that he's still holding bitter resentments for the years that I let that anger come out towards him. And so I'm wondering, you know, does the gospel really, is it the thing that motivates Christians? Or is it something else in our lives um, that motivates us? Now the Old Testament writers are very clear about this. It's not something that's New Testament alone. It's Old Testament as well. They commonly called upon God to show unmerited favor towards them. Did you hear that? Unmerited, undeserved favor. Did Mary deserve the favor she got from Jesus? Has anybody anywhere ever deserved the treatment that God gives them? As I said in my story about my wife, I don't know that we deserve this, Lord. I don't think we do. Because the blessings that the trial has brought to us have been very precious to us. But nevertheless, I still prayed for the sake of my wife, knowing this was just tearing her apart. And uh, God in his goodness did that, not just out of his goodness. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, you might want to write these verses down because just take the bulletin if you have a pen and write the references down. You can look them up later. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Do not think that it is because of your righteousness that the Lord is doing this for you. God is not triggered by our righteousness, our goodness to act kindly toward us. He is just that way, period. That's the way He is. Psalms chapter 31, verse 1. 
the psalmist said, deliver me in your righteousness. They understood what this is all about. We don't deserve it. Do this kind thing. Help me because that's the way you are. Be who you are to me. I don't deserve it, but please do it anyway. Psalm 71, verse 2. I hope you're writing them down. Important to you. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. So, there was a book written a number of years ago, Christ Our Righteousness. And, um, and, and you remember the struggles that our church went through in a place called Minneapolis. It's just not fair. And people believe that it's just not fair. If you are kind to people, this is my dad now, if you are kind to people who do not deserve it, then what are you going to teach them? You'll teach them irresponsibility. You'll teach them to be spoiled. Come on and come on. What else can you teach them? Take advantages. All kinds of things. And so therefore we can't do this. And my parents' generation had that one down solid. They were terrified of spoiling children. Very sensitive about that. Do you, any of you remember that old generation? Anyway, rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. In Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2, if God were to judge David, David knew he could not stand. Could you stand in God's judgment? None of us could stand. Who is the accuser of the brother? Satan is the accuser. God knows that. Satan's got all the cold facts. And it's like in a court. Satan brings up a long laundry list. And I know the stuff that's on my laundry list. And I would expect all through my life rejected. Stamped on the top of that. And I would deserve it. Because I was lousy. Terrible things that I've done. I'm not a good person not righteous. And yet, God looks right beyond that. He says, I'm going to stamp you as saved because I love you and I will see to it. And that's the message that my dad wanted, needed to hear. Unconditional love. And I wouldn't have spoiled my life and spent run 40 years of my life. Actually, it was more than 40 years. He, now my son, last Wednesday, turned 40. And I wouldn't have ruined his 40 years. How much more could be done if somehow we could have the same joy over the gospel that Apostle Paul, who was very, very adamant about correcting the wrongs in the church. <laughs> right? He didn't understand the gospel. Because you see, when Paul came around, there was a group of the church that took over the church called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believed, well, they had a strong view of God. And their strong view of God was, can you tell me what it was? He doesn't tolerate 
any wrong. None at all. No room whatsoever. Where do you think those Pharisees grew up in? Homes of other Pharisees. Right? People that were hurting. People that were empty. People that didn't know what it felt like to be loved unconditionally. People whose lives were just totally a pain. And finally he found the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And what an awakening he got. And it changed him so completely. And finally he understood. It's because of your righteousness, God. You are the one that makes the difference. Because when he understood that, immediately, as it happened with my dad. Can I tell you about his baptism? I'm going off script. We were in Hawaii. And the word came from my sister. This is not my... There were two of us adopted, a boy and a girl. But we had an older sister who was their biological child. So it was the older sister. Said, Dad's going to be baptized. This and this date. I had no idea what to do with that information. Here was a man who had been just the devil to me all through my life. And he's going to be baptized and I'm a minister. What am I going to do with that? In my mind said, it's impossible. I couldn't understand why he would do it. And I certainly doubted that God could change him. I'm a gospel minister. Did I really understand the good news? Because I was thinking that he had to change himself. So did I know the gospel? And I knew he would stand in the way of that. He wouldn't have anything to do with that. And so Stan Hinton, 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 pastor of the Clovis Church, I, will, I want to see him in the resurrection. A lovely man. He came out week after week to see my dad. Oh, what a wall he must have gotten. Well, there were some things that happened before this. Mom had a terrible disease, and it just shut her down. She had a real hard time the last years of her life, and that made it hard for him. His sister, who lived with his mother, who was, you know who she was. In Florida, she was dying. He went back to sit beside the bed of his sister in Florida while she was dying. She was not alert. She didn't know he was there. Mom was left alone, and I was in Hawaii angry at him for going to Florida, leaving mom. Would you have been angry? But how do we know the ways of the Lord? And as he was sitting beside his sister, some very kind nurses in the hospital took pity upon him. They were very kind to him. They invited him to attend a series of meetings that were being held in that town. He went. He came back determined that he, was going, he needed to change his life. Somehow this wall that had kept him away from God needed to fall down. And God was doing some amazing things. His sister died. He came home. He arranged the studies with Stanley Hinton. And the word came that he was going to be baptized. You, he said, there can't be any fuss about this. If there's any fuss, I'll back out. So we had to figure out, I had to see this. I just, I had to see this. And so we came over, we stayed at my sister's house about, she was in Merced, no, Atwater, and the baptism was going to be in Clovis. You guys don't know where those places are at probably. Yes, you do. 
And so we stayed with our sister, my sister, for several days. And whenever the phone rang, everybody had to be quiet. Because they would recognize the, you know, their kids. But if they heard our kids, they would wonder who they were. And Dad wouldn't be baptized. And I, would, I didn't want to be the cause of that, even though I doubted it. It was really a genuine thing. So finally the day arrived, and we had to figure out how we were going to get there without Dad seeing us, and so we went. My son was about this tall, and maybe this tall, and we hid in the mother's room. It's the only place you could hide in the church besides the bathroom, right? And so we were in the mother's room, and, and I grew up in that area. So there was this a flow of people just keep coming into the mother's room, you know, and they were, they'd heard we were in there, and, and they were meeting, you know, meeting us and talking to us. And then finally my son said, Dad, I've got to have a drink. This is the son I treated so horribly. Got to have a drink. I said, son, you're going to wait. If we go out there and Dad comes in, you know what will happen. He'll turn right around and go back. But I'm thirsty, Dad. He kept telling me that, and finally I gave in. We went out the mother's room, and wouldn't you know it, how the timing works? I, I'm, here is this drinking fountain kind of cut into the wall and and I see my dad come in the door and I bend over into that alcove like this and my son is being smashed with water he's being flooded with water and he says I have had enough dad no you haven't keep drinking <laughs> drinking he took a facial bath that day in cold water you know finally when dad was gone I had enough courage and I said son we're not leaving that mother's room again no matter what, until he's in the tank up front. Mom couldn't be told that we were coming. She couldn't keep a secret. And so, sure enough, when we saw him in the tank, here he is. He's like a pole. He's not moving in the tank. He's not looking out at anybody in the congregation. He's just straight ahead. This was a huge decision for... He was in his 70s. Can you imagine the pain in his life? all of those years because he didn't have the gospel. How horrible his life. And he was going to let Jesus replace all of those ugly memories, nasty feelings his whole life. That day we were there. Well, he was in the tank, still standing upright. He hadn't gone under yet. So we came out, marched down in, came right down about third of the way in the church and my mother had come in and she was sitting there and there was my sister and there was her husband and there was their, their child, their children. And we, I sat right down next to my mother. Dad had promised her when he married her that he would give his heart to Jesus like about 50 years ago. And she was watching this happen and she had no idea that her son just sat down next to her. <laughs> My toe-headed boy went flying down the pew to see his cousin. And I saw her look down and then look back up. And the wheels were starting to turn. Who is that? We were in Hawaii, you know. Now we're sitting next to her. And when it came time, I might get emotional about this. When God heals people, it goes down so deep that you can't help but be emotional. When it came time for my dad to go under the water, she realized who was sitting next to her. She grabbed my knee like this. <laughs> After the baptism, I went home. 
And here's his pastor, supposed to believe in the gospel. Do we really believe in the gospel? What was I going to do with this man? He'd just been baptized. And I talked to him for a few moments, and that's all it took. I understand this was a totally different man. God, on the outside, did something amazing. I don't know why he waited that long, but I'm glad he did. He changed that man. He broke his heart by seeing the hurt of his wife and then his sister dying. He realized his own humanity was coming to an end. And this fight, this battle, he had fought it long enough. He now needed to surrender his life to Jesus Christ. Something he had resisted in his whole life. Because you see, if you don't have Christ in your corner, the only one to protect you is, guess who? Yourself. And he was left very, very lonely. And he didn't want to be there anymore. I lived to see my dad change. When I went into ministry, he mocked me. And I lived to see him be proud of me. Boy, that was healing. That was healing to me. The gospel is something else. Something beyond our most fantastic. In Micah chapter 6, you're writing down verses 4 and 5. Talks about uh, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. The whole Bible is filled with stories. In fact, where did this word gospel come from? The, The Bible writers faced interesting challenges. They had to almost invent words to describe concepts that were so far out of the domain of most people's thinking. And you can find all kinds of new words that were coined to describe these concepts. And one of them was the gospel. And they got it from a custom. The um, Phoenicians would travel around the maritime world of the day. And when they traveled around to the Orient, they would bring back boats filled with all kinds of precious cargo. And how exciting when one of those Phoenician ships came into harbor. Everybody in town would go down to the harbor and just to see the fantastic things that they had offloaded from different places around the world. All kinds of things. And you know what they called those ships? Gospel. Gospel. And Paul, thinking about the gospel, he says, this is it. It's like here, God comes in laden, loaded, with all kinds of precious gifts to give away. He could find no better word to describe what the gospel is all about. And that's where the word comes from. Um, Did the Old Testament characters understand the gospel? Jacob, on top of the mountain, fighting with the angel. Did he discover the gospel on that mountain? He found out, listen to how it happened, when the angel fighting against him. The angel touched him. He instantly was paralyzed. And what did he do? His whole demeanor changed. He clutched and held on. What was his enemy was now instantly his savior. That's gospel. He understood it. This is not a New Testament concept. The patriarchs understood that. Do you remember the story of Joshua the high priest? Just covered in Zechariah 
with the sinful garments and the, you know, all of the sins. And who was pointing out his, his faults? Satan was. And what does God do? Covered with real faults that were his, as well as maybe some of the faults of the nation. What does God do? He commands, take those garments off and put brand new garments on. Where does the gospel come into there? God coming in and just simply changing. Don't have to earn it. Don't have to prove anything. It's a free gift. That's gospel. And my God in heaven was able just through the gospel to change the most hardened man I'd ever known in my whole life so easily, so thoroughly, and so quickly. God is able to do that. And that is good news. And my dad was changed. It's really exciting. Did Abraham believe the gospel? Impossibilities, way beyond his reach. And Abraham, very interestingly by Paul, is being credited for having righteousness because he believed the gospel. Now think of that. Our worth goes up. We are suddenly worth more in righteousness simply because we've accepted a gift that we didn't deserve. Figure that one out. On my, 40th, my son's 40th birthday party. Some of you won't like this. But my daughter-in-law was saying, Dad, uh, I, like, like, I like that she calls me Dad. We're like dad and daughter. Dad, what shall I get him for his 40th birthday? That's a significant birthday. What should I give him? And so she's... Finally she came up. She called me again. She says, I found something in the paper. I remember when you and he were at at, at Real Indo Academy, uh, you had a couple motorcycles. And one that you had was a Shadow, a Honda Shadow, 700. Or is it 750? I don't remember which it was. And he loved that bike. He even courted Janie on that bike. He courted her in many ways, but one of them was on that bike. And he, tells, he would tell stories about this bike to Janie. And so this thing kept coming to her head. I think maybe I ought to get him a Honda Shadow. So she looked and she called. She says, Dad, there's one in the, in the classifieds. I don't remember if it was uh, Craigslist or what. But, and shall I get him this? And I says, Janie, how much is it? And she told me. And I says, well, at that price, you certainly can't go wrong. Uh, if he doesn't like it, you can sell it back for the same price, maybe even make more. And I says, check it out. Make, take somebody that knows motorcycles and t- take a good look at it yourself. And it's a beautiful bike. There's only one or two flaws, minor flaws on the whole thing. Gorgeous bike. You can't believe it's like showcase. Red. So she decides she's going to buy this motorcycle. And she, this is two months ago. Sorry for telling you this story. But anyway, she put it in the neighbor's garage. 
well, the neighbor put it in the garage. She had to find somebody to drive. It's been there for two months. Stan had no idea this motorcycle was his in the neighbor's garage. On the birthday, we were at a pizza parlor, and um, she presented him with this plastic box, and the key was inside, and he had to figure out how to open this box, you know, one of these little puzzle boxes, to get to the key. And I have pictures of him. He's looking at that. He's pushing. He's trying to... Still doesn't know the bike that right outside, behind him, in the window outside, is his. You know, he doesn't know that. And he, you know, but anyway, he, he can't open it. <laughs> so finally, she gives him a, a key. <laughs> and he knows right away to go outside. He goes outside, and he goes right to this bike, and sure enough, there's the bows and everything on it. It's obviously his. And he is befuddled. How could anybody pull this off on him? He didn't know what to do with himself, and he hadn't been on a bike for a year, but he got on the bike and rode it around, and his mother-in-law wanted to go, his wife wanted to go on the back, and my little grandson, only grandson, he's six years old, but he's not very tall, he's about this tall, and, I, and he said, Brendan, do you want to go? Brendan has a smile from here to here, you know. He couldn't say a word, just smiling so big, and he stepped up on the motorcycle and got on, and went very slowly around the parking lot, and... My son has ridden that every day since, that bike. Uh, God changes our lives by giving us gifts. And I'm hoping that all of us can remember that the greatest thing about salvation is the gift that Jesus gives us. It has the power to break the hardest heart. It has the power to transform. And I'm expecting in some way God is going to hand down a gift to my son and heal him just like he's healed me over the years of all the hurt that I've had in my life. All through the Bible, there's these amazing stories. Who is a God like you? Micah says. Micah 7, 8 who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He just passes right over them. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in what? Unchanging love. And that's the one thing that Satan cannot win over against. It's that love of Jesus that changes hearts and suddenly Satan had lost his power completely and thoroughly. The gospel, my friends, is good news. Changes everything. Yes, Father, we are excited and thankful that when you look down upon us, it's your love that is the first thing that comes to your heart. That unconditional, unchanging, awesome love that you feel for us. It comes out of your heart and not in response to our behavior. And once we have felt that love, our lives are changed and our lives begin to reflect who you are. Thank you for healing my dad, for saving him, for healing me and now my son. And for all of us in our own families, in our own selves, we are so grateful to have received 
felt and experienced unconditional love how transformative that is in our lives thank you for who you are for your righteousness in Jesus name amen